Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house indie classic and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today on the show, I'm very excited that we're starting a brand new film series looking at another movement in film history, the French New Wave. Joining me for this series is the one and only Omaya Jones, and today we're starting by learning what is the French New Wave, and we're looking at a film, Vivre Sa Vie, from director Jean-Luc Godard. Don't go anywhere. Before we get into the show, don't forget Art House Garage has a Patreon. Sign up today for extended episodes, bonus episodes, video episodes, and ad-free episodes. So you're about to hear me talk to Omaya all about the French New Wave. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you'd be hearing the extended version, in which we get off on a long tangent all about the films of Edgar Wright. Good stuff, but a little off topic. Sign up to be a patron today if you want to hear it all. All that, plus a discount on merch in the Arthouse Garage shop. Go to patreon.com slash arthousegarage today or find a link in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Welcome to Arthouse Garage. I love reviewing new films, but I equally love looking to the past. We've done a number of film series on the show. We did an intro to art house cinema, an intro to classic cinema, a series of films made in Technicolor, a series on contemporary Asian cinema, and just recently we wrapped up a series on film noir. Well, today we're beginning a new series on the French New Wave, one of the most creatively fruitful and influential movements since the invention of cinema. It's a part of film history I've always wanted to know more about and better appreciate, so I'm excited to start this four-episode series today with Omaya Jones. Omaya has been on the show a number of times before. He's an incredible cinephile and a film podcaster himself, and he programs the Arkansas Times film series here in Little Rock which is currently on an extended hiatus because of the pandemic. I always love talking with Omaya, and I've learned so much from him over the years. Today's topic of discussion is an introduction to what the French New Wave is, and a look at the 1962 film Vivre Sa Vie. So, without further ado, here is my discussion with Omaya Jones. Maya Jones, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always excited to have you on the show. It's been a while. Uh, was the last one we did, 
Um, I think it was the one car Y box set. And say, I know we also did the Shang-Chi talk. Was that mm-hmm. in the middle of that? I yeah, think that right. Be, because yeah, which, just Tony Long yeah. was in that and that came out right in the middle of our. Yeah, Tom, that's right. That's right. Car Y. So that worked Tom out Fullery. nicely. Well, I was, you know, always looking for a reason to have you back and, uh, you know, I kind of have, have wanted to do the series on this show as like, so uh, like art house, classic, indie, foreign, whatever, and kind of hit those different categories. And so I've just wrapped up with a film noir uh, marathon with Rance Collins, which was so interesting. And it's it, it, part of the way I feel like I choose these things is like, I want to learn more about it myself and like uh, program a short little four episode series about how to you know dive into this thing. And another area that I have long wanted to become better versed in is the French new wave. Cause I know it's a big deal and I sort of know what it is, but yeah, so it's always been kind of in the back of my mind. And so I'm glad to have you back for this before we get into all of that. Uh, what have you been watching lately? You want to jump on any, uh, any other film or show or anything you've seen lately? Yeah. So I, I've kind of been watching more stuff lately. I feel like than I had earlier in the year nice. and but most recently I started watching that 14 part documentary series, women make film. Do you remember when that came yeah. out? A couple of years? Uh, is it Mark cousins? Is he the person? Yeah. 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 And so um, I, I actually recorded those on a DVR. Oh, wow. It's just been sitting on my DVR since 2020. Um, but I'm actually watching them. I'm streaming them on the criterion channel. And, okay, uh, right. and so I I'm two or three episodes in and um one of the things that I've been doing along with that is trying to watch some of the films that are mentioned in there that are available because oh, yeah. they're not all readily available, mm-hmm. but a couple of short ones that I, that I watched, one was a rewatch is a silent film by Alice Guy Blanchet called the ocean wave, which okay. is, it's kind of weird just because like, it's not fully intact. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's somewhere along the line, along the way reels went missing or something. And so it's only like 40 minutes long. It's about this woman who sort of like she washed up on the ocean, this guy who took her in and became her sort of abusive father. And then she runs away and falls in love with a novelist. Um, wow. And then there's a murder trial and it's just like all this different stuff happens in it. And it's sort of an interesting silent film. And then I also watched as part of that, another short film called, um, what is it? It's on YouTube because it's not on on home video at all. It's called On the Twelfth Day, which is just a a short live action version of the 12 Days of Christmas that highlights the absurdity of the song. So (laughs) like, and I had, you know, it's a song that I don't haven't thought about since being a child at all, but it's like, it's very colorful um, Mm -hmm. and it's very expressive and swans are swimming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many different things. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the bulk of what I've been watching other than like, I rewatched who framed Roger rabbit recently. Oh, nice. Uh, I just speaking of Mark cousins, I've seen a chunk of his other series, which is just called, uh, an odyssey or it's, I can't remember history of film and odyssey, I think is the title and, uh, really impressive what I've seen. And I have women make film on my like Amazon wish list to buy the Blu-ray of it. Um, because I would, I would love to have both of those. Um, but yeah, I'm always really impressed with with his sort of film history. Uh, ed- isn't the Odyssey one similarly, like it's like, I think it's longer, right? Yeah, it's very long. It's like 14 hours, 15 hours. But they're really good. So like each episode has sort of a thesis. It's like a, it's like a very extended video essay slash 
here's the history of cinema. Um, right. So yeah. women make film, it, it, you know, like the format is, this idea, it's like a film school only using the films of women. So it's in, I think 60 parts. And so like the first part is like the beginning and like close-ups wow. and, you know, it's just like every section is sort of like examining a different aspect wow. of That's a film cool. through only using films made by women. That sounds fascinating. I want to watch it even more now. And I, so I think I saw at some point that that was streaming on Criterion. That would be a good time to, to watch it without, you know, shelling out to purchase it. But yeah, well, I'm going to bump that up my list then. Um, I was going to mention a couple of things that I've watched lately. Um, one is it's a studio Ghibli film, but it's not Miyazaki. Uh, it's called the tale of the princess Kaguya. Have you seen it? Oh yeah. I saw that at uh Cal's Ron Robinson. Oh, wow. Uh, I think at like, probably like 2018 or something like that. But oh, yeah, gosh, I really I love that. Love I love like the animation and everything. Yeah. I would love to see you it know, on the big screen. My gosh. I remember that was that was before I was programming the Arkansas Times film series because my friend David Thedic mm-hmm. was there. And in between, I think there were two films showing and, and in between we went over to the library and I was trying to compile a list of films by women that I hadn't seen. And that's when I was introduced to Claire Denis. I remember, oh, like, I think I got like white material, maybe a couple other things from the library. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just streamed it on HBO. Um, but yeah, so beautiful. It's like, if, if you haven't seen it, anyone listening, it's done in like this watercolor style and it's apparently that's based on like the oldest Japanese folk tale that, that we have record of. Um, and it's about this, this bamboo farmer who finds a, a child inside of a bamboo stalk magically and it's from the heavens and, um, really, really lovely. And, uh, just, so incredibly visualized um, on the screen. So definitely recommend that. And then, and this was a big classic blind spot that I had never watched, but it played recently in the, as like a 50th anniversary thing is cabaret. Have you seen cabaret? Oh yeah. I love, um, big fan of Bob Fosse. Seen all the Fosse's. It's one that it's always been on my list and I, I, I knew a lot about it, but it was so, so good. I loved it so much. I didn't know, like I knew something, some things about the stage play and that kind of thing. I didn't know what a, like a queer film it was and like how much that mm-hmm. ties into the story. I thought that was really impressive. And um, obviously Liza Minnelli so good. I thought Michael York was incredible as well. And uh, yeah, it's always fun. Like, there's, there's a handful of like classic movies that I was like, Oh, I've always meant to watch that. And when it's like, Oh, it's coming to the big screen. Let's, let's take the time. So that was a really, uh, really fun. And they, it was like a TCM tie in thing. Mm-hmm. So Ben Mankiewicz is on the screen at the, the beginning which is kind of cool seeing on the big screen doing that. Cause usually it's just on the TV, but, uh, but yeah, that was really, that was really great. So. Yeah. You know, cabaret is, um, it was one of the films that I thought about screening in 2016 mm-hmm. or no, maybe it was like in 20 during 2020. Um, I don't think I, I was actually on the list, but I thought about it just because the idea of a film that sort of depicts the slowly creeping in a fascism to daily life mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film they're kicking nazis out of the bar and at the end of the film nazis sort of make up spoiler yeah. alert but nazis are like the entire audience of the bar <laughs> and sort of like it just it creeps up on you you know mm-hmm. and i and that may have been i think i ended up going with the dead zone which is what we would have screened mm-hmm. if not for um covid yeah instead but yeah it was amazing like 50 years ago this it's it's like remarkably progressive for that time and also remarkably prescient for our times now like there's a scene where michael york is uh chastising someone who's kind of like saying some nazi stuff and he's like you just read this in the newspaper and like how 
<laughs> how uh, unfortunately still timely that feels today uh, was pretty pretty remarkable. But yeah, right. That, and then like the scariest it. thing is um, the scene. What is it? The future belongs to me. Yeah, the, the, future the bl- singing yeah. at the the restaurant. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so yeah. chilling, and it just builds and builds and builds, and it's like we're just surrounded by it in this moment. And oh man. So, so well done. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw this out here. Um, If you ever want to do a series on Bob Fosse, I've already read the bio. I've seen all the films. I think I own all the films. You're my guy. Uh, Yeah. We got, we got to do Fosse because he only made like four features in a a television special. Yeah. So it was at the Liza Minnelli thing. Yeah. Liza with the Z, which I have, I have that on DVD too. Um, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's your five films series right there. Uh, I think that's a great idea. Let's pencil that in for sure. Yeah, we also, I mean, we also, we screened all that jazz, which is one of my yeah. favorite films of all time. Yeah, that's like after watching Cabaret, I'm like, wow, I've really got to see all that jazz now because I know people love it. And if it's, you know, anything like what I just saw, then I'm in. <laughs> well, Let's move on, shall we, and get into the French New Wave. So, yeah, as I, I kind of already explained why I wanted to to study this a little bit with you. And um, I, I chose some films. We'll, we'll talk about what all the films are going to be in just a minute. Uh, and I kind of chose things that I haven't seen that would be easy to stream and that uh, maybe not the most obvious choices, but it's like it's the, the filmmakers we need to pay attention to and all of that kind of thing. So anyway, we'll get into that. So I guess if we're going to jump into this first big question, and I sort of know the answers to some of these, but I'm going to ask it for the sake of the podcast so you can explain it to us is when did the French new wave happen and why is it considered so important? When? Okay. So the French new wave was was a film movement that was made up of young people in France throughout the 1950s. Right. And so sort of preceding the new wave, there was, um, this a culture of cinema and film and part of the reason is just like they weren't competing with like television they weren't competing yeah, with yeah. like the internet and stuff like that so going to the movies was a big deal and a lot of these young people were going to movies and they were making like zines and film journals and so you know one of the biggest ones that we'll talk about is Kaidu cinema um but it was just like part of the culture and there was a there were a number of like film clubs so people would like go to these clubs that could be anywhere um and just watch films but the one that survived and i think it's sort of still in existence today is, is was the cinematheque francais um and i'm look, i don't speak french so forgive me for bad pronunciation but i was gonna say the same thing <laughs> when i started pronouncing things horribly but yeah but so like the cinematheque francais and you can get like a more in-depth explanation of this particular institution if you subscribe to movies podcast uh, the first episode of the second season was on the Cinematheque. In fact, the, the whole movie, the second season is uh, about only in theaters. So it's about specific films and specific theaters that were sort of big in the history of cinema. That's cool. So uh, I recommend that. But so it was run by, uh, well, it was, there was a, a man named Henry Langlois. Um, and I know I'm butchering that name. And he sort of just collected all of these films and he would show them. And even like during the German occupation during World War II, he would protect them because one of the edicts that they had passed down was that they were supposed to destroy all of everything from before mm-hmm. like 1937. And he would protect, he protected them throughout that course. And then so after the war, 
they were showing these films. So there was a group of people, a group of young people who created a publication that only lasted like a handful of issues called like Gazette to Cinema. And Truffaut and Godard actually met writing in that publication. And then the following year after that one folded, they started writing for Cahiers du Cinema. And one of the things that they were doing in that publication was just writing these polemics that were about criticizing the French industry as it existed. Um, they they referred to French cinema at the time as like it, it, it translates to like the cinema of the, your daddy's cinema, um, or like qual- like quality cinema was one term. Uh, I'm I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It's like le cinéma du papa, or something like that. With uh, yeah, le cinéma de papa. So and like just it's the stale, tired filmmaking where the emphasis was on sort of um, the craftsmanship of the film. There were a lot of like literary adaptations. There was no really ex- formal experimentation. Mm. And so um, when they started writing in Kaiju cinema, they were sort of like writing sort of like their, what their approach would be and how they would uh, approach the cinema as an art form, which, and we'll talk about our true theory when we talk about Truffaut, but a lot of that was sort of justifying the idea of cinema as an art form akin to like literature or painting mm-hmm and not just as an entertainment. Yeah, interesting. So before that, it was it was more seen as like popcorn entertainment, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think that true. was the consensus. And um, and like, you know, one of the things that they're, they're known for, but, you know, Truffaut did like a book-length series of interviews with Hitchcock. And like, they could have like, they sort of like reclaimed Hitchcock as Rice Queen mm-hmm. from just having this reputation as a person who makes like B-movies or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and really legitimized. I, I don't... I don't know how it's hard because, you know, I wasn't alive in the fifties. So um, legitimize might be too strong a word, but they're like, they really like recognize people like Hitchcock, um, Wells, Howard Hawks as like legitimate artists. And in fact, they were called like, they're, they're, Oh, I didn't, I didn't write this down, but basically like Truffaut and Godard were called like that, the Hawks and the Hawks and Hitchcock crew or something like that. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, and it's also interesting, like, so like when they're watching these films, right, at Cinematex, they didn't have subtitles. So if they're mm-hmm. watching a foreign film, they might not speak the language. And so, and I think like that shows up when they start making a film, just in that like there is a heavy emphasis on the visuals and like, mm-hmm. like they call it a camera scuro or, or something like that, where basically the idea is like you, you're writing with the camera. Um, and so their approach was very focused on a visual storytelling, which I think is also part of why they, they appreciated Hitchcock so much is that, yeah, yeah. you know, you can watch Hitchcock film and if you don't speak the language, you can still understand it because he's such a clear storyteller. Yeah. There's some Hitchcock quote about, you know, if the movie's good enough, you can turn the sound off and still, still enjoy it basically, or still understand it. Yeah, that's cool. So they were writing initially for the Cahiers du Cinema, which is like this film criticism magazine but that this was before they had made anything. Is that correct? Right. This was before they'd made anything. Um, eventually in the fifties, I started making short films and um, like when we, when we just say talk about it now, but like, like Truffaut, like they were rebelling against the kind of films that would be showcased at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And then in fact, like I think Truffaut had been banned from Cannes. And then the next year, you know, they made the 400, he made the 400 blows and it won the festival. Wow. Um, it was like a really quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, 
But I think like there were a group of investors that came in and figured like somehow they just got, they got some money. They didn't have like a ton of money. And so like a lot of their films were like very low budget operations. And like someone has said that um, like, it wasn't uncommon. Like if a film is 60 minutes or if it's 52 minutes long, they maybe shot 60 minutes of film. Cause like wow. they used everything. Um, and th- so this is, of course, this is also like post Italian neorealism. So they're using like smaller, like 16 millimeter cameras and like they're very mobile. Um, they used, it's called a, it's kind of cool. I kind of want one, but it's called like a Naga tape deck, which is if you've ever seen someone with one of those, like it's like a reel to reel recorder, but like it's small enough that you can kind of like wear it in like a messenger bag or something like slinging over Mm, your shoulder. So like everything was like portability and cheap and using real sets, not getting permits um, to film things. That fits in. So I, one thing I've heard is that he's kind of documentary style. And I was, mm-hmm. I, I, that's helped me understand, like, maybe that's kind of what that means that they were sort of just on the go and everything. Yeah. And it's really like, it's really interesting. And it's also, it's like really um, invigorating and it like kind of makes you want to get out and like, just do something, you know, like, can you imagine like what they would have done if they had like cameras that fit in their pockets? Yeah. You know? Well, that's interesting. Cause I know like Agnes Varda later in her life, he started using digital film and and like even has some some thoughts about physical versus digital uh in in some of her films yeah that's interesting i read one thing this was in a an essay from criterion's website that i'll link but it was just it was someone talking about they talking about Truffaut and godard and godard had their i think the quote was their noses pressed to the screens like just they were watching so much cinema and they they were writing here's what we would do and then they actually went out and did it and it, mm-hmm. it worked and like that was part of what was so remarkable about the whole thing um we're kind of mentioning some names maybe we should slow down and say who they are so who are some of these big names in the french new waves we're talking about jean-luc godard and francois Truffaut are mm-hmm. two of the the major ones um and that's two of the people we're going to watch the films of uh as part of this series who else um do we need to say anything about them first and then who else are kind of associated with uh, this movement? So a lot of these directors were associated with Kaiju cinema, which uh, was a magazine that at one point was edited by, I think Eric Romare and like Jacques Rivette uh, wrote for the magazine, uh, Claude Chabrol. those are some of the guys that actually wrote for Kaiju Cinema. And then you had like this other group that was called the Left Bank, which we'll talk about when we talk about Varda and Demi. Then that group included a group of uh, filmmakers that I think in some senses were maybe a little bit older. Hmm. Um, a lot of them had some background already as artists, not necessarily as filmmakers, but as artists. Um, and I think like they got the name left bank from literally living in a specific geographical location of mm-hmm. France, um, and then sort of geographically as it relates to the river that runs through, um, Paris. Um, but I think they had some of the same political sensibilities mm-hmm. and some of the same, uh, similar approaches to film. Uh, Chris Marker is another one that we'll talk about, um, who, uh, directed uh i heard i heard your uh preview on the last episode i didn't yeah. say this was one of the best short films i said it was oh. the best short oh film okay of all time. <laughs> the best short film of all time <laughs> yeah. we're gonna sneak into the next episode too which uh just i mean not a spoiler but uh but you know it 
it was remade as 12 monkeys in the 90s okay okay yeah yeah so if you ever seen that that gives you a basis maybe i shouldn't have told you that i don't know if you've ever seen 12 monkeys <laughs> actually if not so okay we're good <laughs> so don't don't watch 12 monkeys before you watch la Jete. okay um i think that's a good kind of um preamble and so one of the other questions i had before we talk through the episodes we're going to do is um so what what would you say defines a film from the french new wave is it considered part of that because of the filmmaker who made it or is it something about the style that makes it associated with the french new wave or is it a combination of those things or is that is that an impossible question to answer i think it's time and place okay uh i think you know it's hard to say like like i could make a film in the spirit of the French new wave, but I mm-hmm. couldn't make a French new wave film. Gotcha. gotcha if that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like, how we have I could film take noir the... and neo noir or something. Right. Right. And even yeah. though like, you know, noir is a specific, well, maybe that's noir, yeah. noir has some, some trappings of a genre. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of, it's kind of, noir is weird because you'll, you'll get people that have, in fact, I think Eddie Miller at TCM has done this or, or maybe has contributed to some of them like having a specific list of like a, a definitive list of oh, more wow. films or something. This is, you know? and this isn't kind of, yeah. I think, yeah, uh, interesting. And so like, you can still make something that is a noir, but like, I guess in the classic North, there's like a finite amount, but just like with the French new wave, there's like a, I think if you're just looking at the period and the filmmaker specific filmmakers, there's a specific period of time where your film would have to count. And at, at a certain okay. point, you know, it was, doesn't doesn't really fit anymore and even yeah. like Truffaut um one of the things and this was part of how he and Godard fell out was towards when you get to the last part of his career his films were more formalist they were they started mm-hmm. to resemble some like these classical Hollywood elements or not even classical Hollywood but like just classic filmmaking they were yeah. less experimental Whereas Godard goes into the entirely opposite direction and goes way more political and way more experimental and keeps trying to like reimagine what you can do with the form. Hmm. Um, and I think that caused a rift. Well, I think also Godard being an asshole caused a rift, but. So I guess on the, we've kind of touched on a few of the visual things and maybe we'll get into that when we talk about today's film. Yeah, actually, let's let's save that. So, but, but my basic understanding has been this is a, a period that was incredibly creative, and this handful of filmmakers made a bunch of movies that kind of broke all the rules, mm-hmm. and and really kind of changed everything that came after it to to some degree. Or like, there's there's still echoes of it throughout movies today. Is that all accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you know everybody. You know, I'll tell you. If you want to look at something like where the spirit of the French new wave is in terms of rules, it's like YouTube because like the people who make YouTube videos just don't have any of the formal rules of cinematic storytelling. And you'll see people on YouTube just like adopt jump cuts and just different editing things that just, I think um, have been slower to make their way into cinema. That's very interesting. Yeah. Think about where that, that kind of innovation happens now. That's cool. Well, let's talk about the four episodes we're going to do, which, um, hold on, I lost my episode list here. I think I know it offhand. But so today we just kind of did through a, a little bit of a intro to the new wave. And we're going to talk about the film Vivre Sa Vie uh, from Jean-Luc Godard, who uh, 
we'll talk more about him in a minute but yeah obviously he's one of the big names here next week or next uh, next episode we're going to talk about francois Truffaut and his film jules and jim and then we're also going to talk about la jete the greatest short film of all time according to amaya jones and uh at that point and actually we'll also talk about auteur theory which uh is something that is a, ter- a term that was coined by Truffaut, correct yeah yeah well there there's sort of a yes well yeah we'll talk more about it next time but that's that's a <laughs> that's like a filmmaker term i learned a long time ago uh and so it's interesting here this is where we kind of got the idea of that and and what that means is like the director as author versus before that the director was seen as more of like a blue collar maybe not blue collar but like just someone who comes in and does the the leadership role but here we have the creative control kind of in in their hands um, then maybe that's oversimplifying it. We'll talk more about it next time. So that's episode two. Then episode three, we will talk about the left bank and what that is, a little bit of the history around that. And Agnes Varda is part of that group. And we'll talk about her film, which is called One Sings, The Other Doesn't. Um, that made it sound like she only made one film. She made a ton of films. There's a great Criterion box set. That's one of her films that I have not seen that I've always wanted to. Then we will wrap up with The Umbrellas of Cherbourg by Jacques Demy and sort of a conclusion episode at that point too so that is uh the four that we're going to do again i kind of wanted to pick things that were maybe not the most obvious things but they are by the the big names of the the movement so um yeah that's that's where we're headed so today we're going to talk about jean-luc godard and his film vivre sa vie so first of all Let's talk about him. And I don't know if it's pronounced Godard or Godard. There's a there's a D at the end there. Again, I don't speak French, but I've heard it as Jean-Luc Godard. Um, what place does he hold in this? Uh, it sounds like he and Truffaut are sort of the the beginnings. Is that is that true? I think so, yeah. I think that they're sort of like, at the magazine, I think they were the most vocal ardent arguers for doing things differently. Um, Truffaut made his film, his, you know, he made films first, or he made the 400 blows first Mm. before Godard was able to get the funds to make breathless. Um, you know, he was born in France, raised in Switzerland. Truffaut, I think Truffaut would argue that like cinema saved his life with Godard. It's something that happened as a teenager. I feel like he really got into cinephilia and became obsessed with it. And like even did jail time, I guess like he stole money from Cahiers du Cinema to, I don't even know if sure. I can't, he, I think he was like trying to um, not fund a film, but just like to get back to Switzerland or something and then got caught and did a little jail time. And then while doing like he was working as a, as a day laborer and then convinced I think he like used his wages to like buy film stock in a camera and made a little film and then got them to buy it as a promotional video. And that's sort of like how he started making actual films. Wow. That's but very it's, interesting. Yeah. So he was trying to study mathematics and fell out of school basically before he had to move back to Switzerland live with his parents. Um, a few years later, he was able to pass his exams, um, but soon abandoned his studies and applied to become a student at the city's leading film school, IDHEC the Institut des Hautes Etudes Cinematographiques. Sounds right. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Which is still in existence, but his application was rejected, right? And Mm. so he he really is like sort of taught himself through watching films at that point. Mm. Wow. How many of his films have you seen and 
um, what's your impression of him and how does this one virus IV compare to the others? I would say actually not that many, like maybe eight. Um, okay. If you look on Letterboxd, though, he has something like 135 credits. What? I don't know how many of those are actual features, how many are shorts, and how many are like very, very short, like maybe under a minute long or something. Um, like one of the more recent ones that I just never got a chance to catch up with was Goodbye to Language, which was like a 3D film that he made that came out a few years ago. Um but I've seen like Breathless. I know I've seen Vivers of V. I've seen um, Weekend, um, Band Apart, or Band of Outsiders, and maybe a couple others. But there's still like there's a lot left for me. But uh, I think Godard is somebody who is always trying to figure out how to say with the camera what you cannot say through words. Um, and there's some of that in this film, sort of like the limitations of spoken language. Mm -hmm. uh, there's um, a feature on the Criterion channel. It's a two-part interview from the Dick Cavett show. And it seems like there are points where Godard is just trying to explain how you how, how he approaches film and just sort of the limits of, of dialogue and the, the limits of the written word. And so a lot of it is sort of like, how do you set up a shot to convey an idea that you can't speak? Hmm. Wow. And there's also like this idea of truth and honesty, you know? That's really interesting. So I've only seen one other and it's Breathless. And it's it's a case of, I mean, honestly, the experience of watching Breathless and feeling like, okay, I don't understand why this is such a significant film. I know I'm like missing the point of a lot of this. And a lot of it is like, if I, you know, had only seen the films that came before it and then watched Breathless, it would have blown my mind, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's so influential that um, going back to that, if you don't understand the ways that it was breaking the rules, then it's, uh, I, I, it's a lot of that was lost on me at the time. I was quite young when I watched it. Um, and so this is only my second one to watch. Uh, and I like this one. I appreciated this one much more having, you know, seen hundreds of films since I watched that back in, I think like senior of high school. Um, but so I, I honestly, I need to rewatch breathless and um, yeah, the way you just put that is helping me even appreciate what I just have seen recently with, with viewers of E and um, his approach there is that, that helps me to uh, contextualize a little bit the film, which I did enjoy. And I'm excited to hear you, your thoughts on it. Um, Let's talk about Virus of V. So I guess basic plot, if if someone has not watched it, uh, it's, it follows this woman and it's, it's uh, given in 12 parts and we get these title cards kind of explaining what's about to happen, like the scenes we're about to see. Um, and it's Anna Karina is the star and she was uh, married to Godard at the time. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I know she's like a significant figure in the, in the French new wave as far as actors go. Um, but in this, in this film, her character, uh, Nana basically, uh, is struggling to survive and becomes a prostitute and things go in a tragic direction. We can say, <laughs> um, but, uh, I did, I, I really like that. I really liked her performance. Um, what, what in the film, and I know a little bit to add to this, but I want to hear you say what, what in this film, um, you think is typical stylistically of, of Godard or of the French New Wave? 
Um, in terms of what's typical of the Frenchie web, I, I would say just like the energy and the experimentation. I think mm-hmm. it's different from the previous films I know in that they used a heavier camera, hmm. and they but they were also able to use more complex lighting. So hmm. there's a, a lot of stuff that it seems almost as though he did it to show off what they could do. Hmm. Um, the cinematographer, um, Raul Coutard, uh, let's see. Yeah, and yeah, his name was Raul, and there's a character named Ra- Raul in the film. <laughs> yeah, so apparently it says, um, it says it's, when I say it says, what I mean is I'm reading my notes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what you uh, said. <laughs> uh, beginning with Viva Vivre Savi, uh, Cotard devised a simple lighting rig suspended just below the ceiling that a number of small lights directed into the ceiling and white cards were then placed to bounce maximum light off the ambient, uh, maximum light in an ambient diffusion, giving the whole room location adequate light with which Godard could then improvise various camera setups. So pleased was Godard's, uh, with Godard's lighting arrangement that he probably devised a 360 degree camera pan to exploit this freedom. And so, mm, I mean, wow. that's, you know, I think part of it is like, you know, Godard didn't go to the film school. And so he was, he, like a lot of these filmmakers were sort of teaching themselves through dissecting other films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to re- recap that, so he was pointing lights upward at white, mm-hmm. white cards that would then give enough ambient light to the entire room right. instead of saying, okay, the actors will be in this one spot. We point the lights here and action. But that, that makes sense. Like there's this, one of my favorite moments in the film is this dance sequence that she goes all over the room and the camera mm-hmm. follows her around, um, which I guess, yeah, would be impossible with uh, a more traditional lighting setup. Right. And, and like, and I think part of the thing is that Qatar or all of these filmmakers, like the cinematographer, the editors, they all sort of grew up together because they're, mm-hmm. they're all probably around the same age. They probably all have the same level of technical expertise, maybe some a little bit more than others, but they're all sort of learning this together as, and they're growing together. Kind of sharing um, their innovations together and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then also, so like, you know, Godard commissioned the score. And so the film is in 12 parts or 12 uh, vignettes or 12 uh, tableaus. Mm -hmm. And he commissioned a score and the composer was asked to compose 12 different scores. But then Godard Mm -hmm. ends up taking one of them and sort of like sampling the one composition. And we we hear like bits and pieces of that throughout the film, you know. Um, he also does things like he casts, like the philosopher towards the end of the film is playing himself. Uh, yeah, so that wasn't his teacher or something. Right. Now, um, yeah, I'm not sure what their former relationship was other than that he was a somewhat famous philosopher. I read that he uh, was like a student of him at school, um, I think, some, something like that. So they they actually knew each other. Yes. And his name was Bryce, Bryce Perrain. That's one uh, of my favorite scenes, too. And then uh, earlier in the film, there's a cameo. They play a jukebox. It's, what, it's the only full song that, well, there's two full songs, I guess. But this one, um, it's a song called Mamom. And uh, Jean Farad is, is the singer of this song. And he's also the man at the jukebox that we see. And then oh, he, goes and he sits down. And so he's sort of in there. An unnamed character doesn't come back again. Um, is that in like the opening sequence where they're talking in the cafe? No, that it's in the sequence sequence when um, I think she first meets the pimp. Okay, but it's not the dance sequence later with the jukebox. No, it's not. It's not the gotcha. dance sequence later. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, some uh, just a few things that I read 
uh, just that were kind of new innovations or, or new stylistic things uh, would be like the jump cuts. And there's a few moments of that in the film where, you know, the camera's showing us the same thing and it's just cutting in between to kind of show the passage of time. I think like she's riding in the back of a cab at one point and um, she's not, it's like, you can tell it's hard to describe with words, I guess she's staying in the same place, but she's like, you know, moving as, as she would, but the, the, everything outside the cab is changing just slightly and jumping forward. Um, but then other things that just struck me as unusual, like um, we open in the, actors backs are to us like we don't see their faces for the first uh minute or two we just hear their voices and um that struck me as something that probably was seen as a a breaking of the rules at that time yeah jump cuts are interesting because i had always associated jump cuts with godard and he does i mean he's probably the person who's most known for using them but i think it was uh, i was watching two in the wave and there's a clip where they interview a, a filmmaker named Jean Roche who made a film called Moi Noir in 1958. So a couple of years before Breathless. And I think like the jump cuts were then directly attributed to him, which I think, hmm. and I don't know if he counts as a, as another new wave director or not, because I was not familiar with this particular filmmaker. Uh, hmm. I'm guessing not because I'm seeing that he was born in 1917, which to me puts him outside of the, the frame time frame. Um, but a lot of these things are sort of by, by necessity, right? Because again, like they don't have a lot of money, so they can't just like do endless takes. Yeah. They don't they they don't have the resources they can go and like get footage of things to cut to. The way Godard works is oftentimes it's not really a full script. It's like a scenario. It's like a sort of sketch out mm -hmm. idea of a scene. Uh, he's often writing things the day before uh, they shoot something, um, and so they're they're as a often an improvisational improvisational aspect to it and as an aside one thing that i keep that i'm learning is just like when i think of unconventional filmmaking techniques they're oftentimes not that unconventional actually like hmm. lots of people do this um like i know you recently did an episode on uh, hong sang su which um you know yeah. he doesn't write scripts mm -hmm. um ahead of time uh we did Wong kar wai doesn't yeah i was say that sounds still doesn't yeah. yeah uh even like Christopher McGuire and Tom Cruise, when they're doing these Mission Impossible movies, don't really write scripts. Interesting. Which is uh, unusual when you're doing something at that scale, yeah. you know, but still it's just, it's a different method of working when you don't have, um, when you're not reliant on financiers to give you tens of millions of dollars or more, mm -hmm. you have more freedom to experiment. And I, and it seems as though one of the things that people do quickly is they dropped scripts full scripts oftentimes yeah i don't hear about that so often i remember yeah with Wong Kar Wai, that struck me as such an unusual thing but um yeah that's interesting that so you as you were saying that about godar i was like that sounds just like Wong Kar Wai, and yeah maybe a more more common practice than uh, than i realized um do you know anything about like sort of what inspired this film or the making of it uh other than what you've already said about the you know the 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 lighting and all of that um do you know kind of how it came to be as far as the idea for it uh not specifically but you know towards in the middle of the film there's a section one of the sections is essentially turns into a documentary about prostitution mm -hmm. yeah and i think like that text is directly taken from a book a nonfiction book about prostitution 
And also on the Criterion channel, there's like a short 20-ish minute documentary about prostitution in France around this period of time. And so I, my guess would be, again, sort of trying to get at this idea of truth and reality uh-huh. is he's seen something right in the streets in his everyday life and wants to make a film about something that he's actually seen. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the genesis of the film. So it probably starts with an idea, like how does one become a prostitute? How does one go mm-hmm. from being just a, you know, in, in this case, a woman who is either married or at least in a relationship with a kid. How do you go from that to abandoning that life and then becoming a prostitute? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like that, like it's just trying to get at something that's happening in society that you're seeing and sort of fictionalizing it. Yeah. I read, I read, um, an essay by Lucy Sante also on Criterion's mm-hmm. website. And she talked about just like the expose nature of this, which, you know, we have breathless as sort of this gangster movie. And then he did a musical, I think in there. And, and this was kind of him doing an expose. I thought that was interesting to, to see. And I, I also saw that one of the, I guess origins was that, yeah, that nonfiction work about, you know, prostitution, kind of about prostitution and how it had changed, which is interesting, mm-hmm. but you kind of get some of that in that section. Yeah. There's that one uh, tableau that's, you know, like you're saying, it's basically a documentary. It's a voiceover where she's sort of asking like, okay, what about this? What, you know, is it dangerous or uh, can I, how many people do I see in a day and all of that? Um, and it, we're just kind of having like a, a montage of, uh, different moments in the life of a prostitute kind of thing. Yeah. But it becomes almost educational at that point and, and how this is not the the same as, uh, or even like how the legality around it had changed it's mm-hmm. in recent years, which yeah, very interesting stuff and um, not quite what I expected from this movie. Do you think I'm pronouncing that correctly? Vivre Savi? Vivre, vivre Savi. Yeah, sure. And the English translation of that, interestingly, is my life to live. So it's sort of this idea of, you know, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want. And and we see where things go. Um, we haven't spoiled the ending of the film. And maybe we don't have to. But I, I mentioned that it's a tragic ending. Um, and maybe that can be enough for people who haven't seen it to, to know that. But um, it was a bit shocking. Did you? Did the ending surprise you when you first saw it? Um. I suppose so. I guess, you know, when I, I go into a film, I try to go in a blank slate and I try to not mm-hmm. to have expectations and I try not to get ahead of where the story is um, unless it's a mystery, right? Because then yeah, you can't yeah. help but try to figure it out. But yeah, yeah. otherwise, I just kind of try to go along for the ride. Um, and so I guess... It, I don't know if I would say it was shocking... It was definitely sad, though. I think it was actually, you know what? I rewatched it before we recorded. I think it was more shocking this time, actually, knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. I think what shocked me was that it's um, there hasn't been that level. Like, there's guns and everything, and that's kind of the first time, I think. Maybe someone earlier in the film has a gun at one point, but mm-hmm. it doesn't go to Oh, yeah. No, there's a, there's a scene where they're talking in the cafe and then you start to hear gunshots and it's this oh, great, that's right. Just like the, the camera sort of like is panning from like left to right. And there are these jump cuts as the, as the shots are firing. Yeah, that's and right. That's right. Walk, that is yeah. a, a remarkable moment. Yeah. Like cutting, cutting, cutting so quickly. And the man runs into the cafe and his face is full of blood. And then she just has to like, she bolts out of there. And 
Yeah. And then later they remark on it and the guy says the guy who I think I think it was our pimp who says something like I think that was a political thing and not a crime thing or something like that. Because mm-hmm. they never really yeah. ex- explain like what happened or why. Yeah, it's interesting. There's like this this feeling in the movie like because we're kind of getting her perspective on a lot of things and it's um it's like here's this this job she's going to do which is maybe a little unusual, maybe kind of exciting in some ways, but also um there's not a sense scene to scene that she's in danger, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just doesn't feel like that kind of movie. And of course the ending before we get to the very end, she's met this man who reads Edgar Allan Poe and um, it's, it teases you with something different and then things go where they go at the very end. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like she's in danger, but she's also sort of like, not in control. You know, she almost yeah. almost sort of like falls into prostitution because it starts mm-hmm. out where she just needs money to pay rent. She gets a job. She borrows against future wages. And then like the first time she, she tricks it's she's walking on the street and this guy's just like, how about it? And she's like, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, and like, that's sort of it. And at that point, you know, she's like fighting him like, cause she doesn't want to kiss. Yeah. 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 Right. That's the thing. Um, and so she just starts out sort of like she needs the money. So she does it. And then she gets introduced to a pimp and then she sort of continually is just sort of losing control, losing yeah. who she is. Um, and I probably can't articulate it clearly, but I think that there's sort of a throwback to the story at the beginning about the, what is it? It's like a chicken that. Oh yeah. It's something about like a, like a chicken and the, you remove the outside and you have the inside and you remove the inside and you see its soul. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's like yeah. the whole movie is like sort of like stripping away layers of her almost, almost like her humanity and sort of bearing mm-hmm. seeing what she really down. is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I think I wrote that in my notes, the chicken thing. And I then it went out of my head. I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's a perfect summation of what's, what's to come. And you know, the, also the, um, it's interesting that they, I'm just glancing at my notes and remembering, oh yeah, there's this thing too. It's interesting how different things are brought in. Like there's Edgar Allan Poe, like he's just reading directly a pretty extended uh, sequence and it's about kind of appreciating art. And also it's a, about seeing an image of a woman. So I think it has, it's kind of in line with the maybe sort of feminist bent of this whole movie. Um, but I think it's also about like not being able to put words to something which is directly what the, I think maybe the exact previous tableau is where she's talking to the philosopher and they talk so much about words and their failings. And that's, I, I that was probably my favorite sequence of the whole movie. I love that, that conversation. Uh, but then there's also earlier, she goes to the movies and she watches the passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And so we have just a few shots of those famous um, close-ups in that film, which is again about a, a woman, uh, suffering at the hands of society in a way so that's another foreshadowing i probably should have seen the end coming from that that movie being included uh that's striking me now in real time but um yeah i I like the bringing in all these different kind of artistic elements to it Uh, so anna karina as i mentioned is the star here um so yeah i know that she's pretty significant what what is what's her story uh, so she was born in 1940 and she was discovered. It, so I guess like at the age of 17, she like hitchhiked to Paris 
and then was discovered by a photographer who got her into modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, her actual, like her birth name was like Hannah Karin Bayer or Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R. And Coco Chanel su- suggested that she change it to invoke Anna Karenina. Um, wow. And so she adopts that as her stage name. That's a cool and, origin story of that name. And then I guess like, so uh, Godard initially asked her to audition for an earlier film. Um, but because there was nudity, she declined at that role. But then when this, or the, but then later he came back to her for a part. Um, I think it was before this film. And then they eventually they married. They were married for something like maybe four years. Hmm. Um, she eventually directed a film on her own, although I have not seen it. And it is not available for streaming. So um, I, I am keeping an eye out. The film Living Together? Is that the one? Yes, yes. Um, it sounds really interesting. I'd like to see it. It, it sounded, well, I didn't read a, a detailed plot description, but it might be similar to a film called all screwed up that Lena Wertmuller did. Um, the Italian, the Italian director is the getting off, off course again, but the first woman nominated for an Academy award. Oh, okay. uh, Interesting. Uh, have you seen any of Lena Wertmuller's films? I have not. Okay. Um, Highly recommend. It says uh, the uh, the IMDb logline for um, Living Together or Vivre Ensemble is the turbulent love affair between a fuddy-duddy history teacher and a free-spirited hippie girl leads to drug abuse and domestic violence. Yeah, I know. Totally different films. I okay. thought it would be more about communal living based off the oh, title. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, totally off base. Maybe that's um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so she was she was discovered in a, in a cafe and asked to photograph, which went much better for her in real life than it does for the character that yeah, she plays well, in this exactly film. Yeah, exactly from the film though too. Wow. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Apparently, um, I think that's the that's the important stuff. We don't need to yeah. talk about the fact that she attempted suicide and then was briefly committed into an institution. Uh, but she died very pretty recently in like the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah, just seeing like she, I think 2019, it said that mm-hmm. she actually has something out this year that she's in Quantum Cowboys. She's yeah. in something called Quantum Cowboys. I don't know anything about that. And also, um, uh, and Cleo from Five to Seven, you know, there's oh, a yes. segment in that one. There's like a short film that film plays in the film. movie. Yeah. yeah. And it's her and Godard acting together in that film. I did read that as I was looking at her credits. I've seen that film, so I remember that that moment. Yeah, that's really cool. So she's very much part of this sort of creative circle that is um, kind of the core group of of French New Wave people, it sounds like. And uh, yeah, she's in a handful of the kind of bigger titles like A Woman is a Woman, Pierre Le Fou, Alphaville. I guess these are all Godard films that I'm mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, what are your, do you have any moments or aspects of this film that you would say like are your, your favorite moment or something just about the filmmaking that you really like? Um, definitely, you know, the most, like, I think actually the, the scene, well, okay, I'll back up. So you typically, when you see a jump cut, a lot of what's happening is you're simply excising time, mm-hmm. right. Without necessarily cutting to something. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. think like the use of the jump cuts um, and the and the cafe scene where the gunshots are going off uh-huh. is like to me like one of the most motivated uses of the tactic, hmm. um, and I I thought that was really interesting 
Um, yeah. And I enjoyed seeing that. Also, just like, you know, there's this air of mystery at the beginning of the film, too, because, you know, like during the opening credits, we just have these shots of her face. Mm-hmm. And then you cut to like the first the first tableau is her talking to her estranged partner um, as she's saying that she's not coming back. But, you know, it's all from the back of their heads. We don't mm-hmm. see their faces yet. Um, and there's something so it's like mysterious and interesting about the way that that shot um, like you can kind of see the reflection in the, in the mirror in front of them, but it's not crystal clear. And then we never really see the man's face. Cause it's not really about him. You know, he's sort of beside yeah. the point. And there's like those little touches, you know, about like when you decide to show someone's face, when not to, uh-huh. uh, when there's, when you use a voiceover, um, there's stuff that I don't have answers for, like why. Uh, and the scene that you referenced earlier were, I think, I think it's the same scene where he's reading Edgar Allan Poe at some point in that scene, there were subtitles, yeah. but no audio. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. and I'm like I don't know why is that is it a technical thing? Like, did, they, did he lose the sound yeah. there and had to improvise yeah. or what? Yeah, right. And I think so. Like, there's just all these questions that you get to ask that I love, you know, mm. and it's not all laid out for you. And there are no there there probably aren't answers. Yeah, um, even though Godard is um, from the people that we're going to talk about from this era, Godard is the last one standing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and it, so much of the film is in the form of it. And that, like what you're talking about, the questions that it leads to and, and just sort of the experience of watching it is, um, it, yeah, it's not it's not all about the plot and the dialogue like like maybe we're used to from uh, films from before this. But yeah, so much about the the apps, the actual form of the, the filmmaking, and like even the the splitting it into 12 parts. Um the own like the other i've seen that a handful of times since since this came out but um uh, like i I thought of cleo from five to seven Mm -hmm. it's a similar kind of split up into different sections uh kind of thing which it's a film we we might touch on a little more in a few weeks when we talk about agnes varda but um yeah it's really and then there's one other moment that i just remembered that i was looking back at my notes she's working at like a record store and people are asking oh do you have this artist do you have this artist and someone says judy garland do you have her and she says no sorry we don't have her either and that's felt like maybe that's a little subtle dig at kind of classic hollywood because you know she's such a judy garland such a a figure in american movies that uh we don't carry her music here sorry it felt like a a funny little in joke maybe uh i hope not because you know judy garland she got a she got a bad rap in hollywood um, and also like the 50, I think the 1954 star is born. It's to me like this, the best version of that. It film. is really good. That's the only other one I've seen. And I really like it yeah. besides the new one, the latest one. Yeah. I tend to think that your favorite version of a star is born is probably the one that you saw first. Um, <laughs> that seems to be like a recurring theme, yeah. but I, I think I've seen all of the official versions and I've seen what price Hollywood. I have not seen country strong. Um, oh yeah, yeah I forgot that's, that's a, a version there too. Yeah, interesting. And to bring it back to Cabaret once again, I forgot until recently that Liza Minnelli is Judy Garland's daughter. I was like, oh, oh yeah, 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 that's right. So there you go. But all right, well, that is Viva Savi. Um, I'm so glad to have to have watched this. It's another kind of big Godard film that's always been on my list, and um, glad to to dig into it with you. So where are we going from here? We're going to go. Oh yeah. And we were going to mention this. There's a moment in the film actually right near the end when she's forced into the car. 
they drive by a movie theater and what is the movie that's playing jules and jim Jim, which is what we're going to talk about next week and um you know i I knew we need to do a truffaut film i was like i I, so actually i have not watched the 400 blows there's my my cinephile card getting revoked you can hey if you can you should make time for it (laughs) yeah i'm gonna try to between now and then i haven't i i I saw it probably in college but i honestly don't remember anything about it yeah um I'm excited to watch to get to see Jules and Jim again. Jules and Jim and like the Red Shoes is another example of this. But there were times when when I was watching them, I like stopped and like ordered the the Blu-ray oh, before wow. I finished it. Nice. Like because I, I think there's something about Jules and Jim where you can just kind of lose yourself in it. Mm. It's so lyrical and it's so like it. Like I'm it, I'm I'm afraid that I might overhype it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I'm afraid I'm all, almost afraid to rewatch it. Cause like, what if it doesn't live up to my experience watching it the first time, but I've, I adore that film. Wow. Um, yeah, I'll try not to get my, my hopes too high. Well, here's the thing. I actually have watched, like, I think I watched the first third of or something of the 400 okay. blows. And I was like, I really like this. I want to continue it. Uh, and I think I, I paused because it was getting late and I was sleepy or something and I just never got back to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I would love to, to get back to that and, and hopefully finish that up as well as watch this. But Truffaut is interesting. So, like, now I've watched Breathless and Viva Savi of Jean-Luc Godard. And, like, I really appreciate them as, or at least this one, you know, I, I was saying I did not fully appreciate Breathless and I should rewatch it. But kind of learning more about it since then, I, I appreciate what he's doing in them. Um and maybe I appreciate them more than I like enjoy the experience of watching them. <laughs> but I'm wondering if Truffaut will be different in hearing you say that about Jules and Jim uh, and in, you know, what I've seen of 400 blows really, I, I kind of felt sucked into it in a way that I just didn't quite have that experience with, mm. with viewers of you or breathless. Um, so we'll see. I'm really, I'm really excited. And La Jete as well. Uh, I mean, talk about overhyping things. You said it's the best short film ever made. We'll <laughs> Although I think, I think, that. Did we did we move Lajete to the third one to fit I with we the were left doing bank? It next time. Oh. oh, is it part of it is part of the left bank though, isn't it? Because yes. the maybe we should do that then. Uh and just scoot that into the third one. We will have you back next time, Omaya, for Jules and Jim and more French New Wave talk. Uh thanks so much for being here today. And uh I I really loved digging into this movie with you. Likewise. It was a lot of fun. Um yeah. Yeah. Great. I feel like I understand the French new wave already much better than I did, you know, a couple weeks ago before I started watching this movie and kind of, uh, reading a, a bit more about it. So, uh, I hope that's the experience for everyone listening as well. And, uh, we will, we will continue next time. Huge. Thanks to Omaya. I can't wait to continue on in this series with him. The plan is to drop these French new wave episodes every other week and review new releases in between. So, next week, I'm not sure just yet what I'm reviewing, but I'm hoping it's the new A24 film, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. That's subject to change, so stay tuned. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years' worth of episodes, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more 
at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew, at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places, or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob-free.